And so we are doing a series on the road to resurrection, and we're, we're most of the way through that series at this point. We're getting closer and closer to Easter, and that's good news, right? We're excited about Easter coming up in two weeks. Woo-hoo! Yeah. We're not at Easter yet. We're still on the road. And the road to Easter is a road that necessarily goes through the cross. So in this series, we've been going through the events leading up to the, the cross and then the resurrection. And last week, I challenged you to consider where you are in the story. And it, and it was a little bit difficult because we read about Jesus being before Pilate and the crowd yelling, crucify. And then we had to recognize that we see ourselves in the crowd. And then we see ourselves in Barabbas, the criminal, the real insurrectionist that got to go free while Jesus gets sent to the cross. And it was humbling, and it, was, uh, it gave us this ability to see God's grace and the bigness of God's grace for us um, and how much we need it. This week, I'm going to challenge you in a little bit different way, that as we look at the cross, um, there's not just one viewpoint to look at the cross from, but there are multiple vantage points And we need to look at the cross from a variety of vantage points to really understand the full implications of what Jesus does for us. In the beginning of this series, Pastor Tom was talking about a trip he had taken into the mountains, driving up a a dusty mountain road in the back of a pickup truck. And it did not seem like a very good trip until he got to this spectacular view and he was talking about how that made it worth it. That's, that's why this journey is worth it, because the resurrection is, is that view. Um, what I love about good views is when I go hiking or when I go somewhere that has uh, just great scenery, I love seeing that stuff. And I love seeing it not just from one point of view, but walking a little further down the trail and looking again and seeing a different side of that mountain and then walking a little further or driving to a different scenic point and looking again and seeing a mountain range from a different vantage point. And that's what we're going to see as we look at the cross. We're going to try to see, are there multiple vantage points? Is there maybe a perspective that we don't often look at that could help us grow as followers of Jesus because of what he's done for us? So we're going to look at that today on this road to resurrection. Would you pray with me as we get started? Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are here with us right now. And Holy Spirit, come and fill us up. Come and open us up so that we can hear your word, uh, so that you can speak to each of us in our lives through your word. Um, Give us that hope of resurrection and help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, even in that difficult journey to the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we started this series by going through these events, starting with the Last Supper and Jesus having that last meal with his disciples, then his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and being handed over, betrayed by Judas, taken by the high priest, being put on trial in the middle of the night, being accused of blasphemy, even though he really is God, then being handed over to Pilate and being accused of being a king of the Jews, uh, even though he really is the king of kings. And Pilate gives in to the cries of the crowd because he does not want a riot on his hands. So uh, then we get to this point in the story that we're going to read today. Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. That's the, the, basically the headquarters of the governor. That's where all of the armed forces for that area, for the, for the Roman armed forces, that's where they would have been stationed. And he called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This was the place where they crucified all of the uh, lower-level criminals and insurrectionists. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And this is a tough event to look at. And it's tough because it's, it's described in a very short set of sentences, but there's a lot that happens. Just starting with the flogging, which would have been uh, a, a whipping that would have been so bad, none of us probably could have watched it, right? It would have been designed to inflict maximum pain, suffering, and, and, and shame, really. After that, they bring him over to the governor's headquarters, and, and all the soldiers, actually the number of soldiers, that the, the, the Roman cohort, the, word, the Greek word that's used there in that passage, it would have been about 600 soldiers, which seems like overkill. I think what Mark wants us to see is that this wasn't just a few soldiers. It was everyone who was available. Let's come and we're going to shame this guy. If you remember, uh, Jesus is tried for being, uh, claiming to be king on trumped-up charges, he actually was never claiming to be king, uh, but he's basically accused and found guilty of being king, which is a threat to the empire, right? Because that, that would uh, be a threat to Caesar, the real king in Rome. And so the soldiers uh, dress him up like a king to mock him before they execute him. Put a purple robe on him, the kingly color, a crown of thorns, which would have looked a lot like the wreath that Caesar would have worn, but it was thorny and poked and probably produced more, you know, blood on his head. Um, and then they, they bowed down. They yelled, Hail, King of the Jews, which, which in itself was just kind of a slur and a mocking way of saying it. And then they uh, hit him on the head with, with a staff. They spit on him. And they, they bow down and can continue to mock him. So it's just this humongous public shaming. And, and it's such a sad thing. Jesus actually is the king of all kings. He's worthy of the most honor in the whole world of anyone. And he gets the most shame. It's such a backwards thing that's happening. The soldiers have no idea. And it's not done yet. He has to go from there to carry his own crossbar, the horizontal piece of the cross, which was very heavy, um, to carry that to the place where they would crucify him. And, and that was not just a quick trip, and it was not a trip taken 
uh, just with a few guards. It was a public parading him through the streets of Jerusalem where all the crowds would just join in the mocking, the hurling insults, spitting. It, I mean, it was awful. Then, then we get to the, to the cross and they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, which actually what that did is it deadened your senses, made it maybe a little bit more bearable. And Jesus refuses it. So, so what do we do with this? I mean, of course, we can say a grave injustice continues from last week, right? This whole story, it's just injustice upon injustice. And that, that is true. We also can look at this, and there are specific parts of this that we can say, wow, look at Jesus and all that he fulfilled. In Mark chapter 10, he tells his disciples that he is going to uh, be arrested and put on trial and handed over to the Gentiles. And then he says this, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him? And doesn't that exactly that come to happen? We also see that Jesus is living into this fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke about hundreds of years earlier as the suffering servant, the one that would suffer for the sake of many to bring salvation to Israel. In Isaiah 50, it describes that person with this verse, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And Jesus fully lives into that. It's amazing the detail and the similarities that we see. I think it's hard to look at these events because we know that something bad and wrong is happening. It's also fairly gruesome. And honestly, I think most of us, when we think about Jesus being crucified, there's a movie that comes to mind. The Passion of the Christ which is a movie directed by Mel Gibson. This is a one, one uh, just visual from the movie. And it really, The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen it, then you know it's hard to get through because it is so gory. It really depicts the brutality of the cross and the pain and suffering Jesus underwent. Um, and it, it really shows a side of understanding the cross, the significance of the cross, that um, Jesus underwent pain and suffering as a punishment for sin so that we don't have to. And that is very true. That is one vantage point to look at the cross from. But there's another vantage point. And as I read the scripture this week, and as I meditated on the scripture and looked at what does this unique part of the story say to us, it actually doesn't focus on the pain. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't focus on the pain. It doesn't focus on uh, what a gruesome experience that would have been, although, yes, it would have been very gruesome. It really focuses a lot more on the shame that Jesus underwent, the incredible amount of shame. Now, this wasn't just this small part of the story. This was actually the whole point of a Roman crucifixion. Uh, Stephen Siemens is a, is a professor at the seminary I went to, and he speaks about the cross, uh, the crucifixion in this way. Yet despite the unbearable physical agony, people in Roman times dreaded the shame associated with crucifixion even more. Since crucifixion was reserved for the dregs of society, outcasts, slaves, and common criminals, the fact that one was crucified defined him or her as a miserable, wretched being that didn't deserve to exist. By pinning them up like insects, crucifixion was deliberately intended 
to display and humiliate its victims. So more than the fear of uh, gruesome punishment, more than the fear of the pain that was going to be inflicted, Romans, in Roman times, people were afraid of the shame that this would have brought. And all these events that we read that are not even at the cross yet, where they're all leading up to the cross, they show that. What a shameful focus there is. And how much shame did Jesus endure? I think what this means for us is it's, it's helpful for us to see that Jesus did not just go to the cross to bear a physical punishment, and he did not just go to the cross to take care of our guilt associated with sin, but he also went to the cross so that he could take care of our shame. Jesus went to the cross to take care of our shame. Now, we don't often think about that, mostly because we don't live in an honor-shame society. Uh, in Jesus' time, it was an honor-and-shame society, which meant that uh, in that kind of communal society, people were more concerned about the shame they might undergo by being cast out by their family or friends, or the shame they might bring to their family or friends if they did something that was shameful. In the West, we're a little bit more, more focused on guilt, if I do something wrong, then I feel personally guilty about it, oh, and, and I want to make sure I can right that wrong, right? Shame is a little bit different concept. I want to look a little bit at the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is about feeling bad about what you have done. It's related to actions. So if you do something mean to your sibling when you're growing up, and then you, you get told you shouldn't have done that, and you might feel guilty... No, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I feel bad about what I did. Shame is not feeling bad about what you did. It's kind of a step further. It's feeling bad about who you are. Feeling bad about who you are. And guilt can lead to shame, but shame in itself, it's kind of a whole other category um, that has to do with our sense of worth um, and our sense of personal defection. Now, we live in a guilt kind of focused society, not a shame-focused society, but I am convinced that we all deal with shame in big ways. One of the reasons I think this is true, because one of the most popular TED Talks of all time is about shame. It's by Brene Brown. It's called The Power of Vulnerability. And if you've seen that TED Talk, uh, it's amazing. I think it's, it's very insightful and helpful to go and watch. She points, she's a researcher, and she researches shame, not a fun job, I guess, but, but she has a lot of insights from that about how we work and how shame affects us. And I want to just share a little bit about what she shares in that TED Talk. Um, I'm just going to talk you through a couple things. The main, uh, the main thing that shame does to us is it gives us this inner monologue that says, I am not blank enough. I am not good enough. I am not smart enough. I am not thin enough. I am not successful enough. I am not strong enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not manly enough. I'm not good enough at my job. I'm not good enough as a parent. I'm not good enough as a child. I'm, you, the list goes on, right? One of the most helpful things for all of us is if all of us could figure out what that word is, and then we just, I'm going to count to three, and we all shout it out. And that would bring way too much shame, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> everyone, everyone just like got really nervous. That, I know, that would bring too much shame. We're not going to do that. Um, it's actually a lot tougher to deal with shame than just filling in the blank. But what this does, 
um, that I am not blank enough, it leads to this feeling of personal defection that ultimately I am not worthy because there's something wrong with me that's not wrong with everyone else, but it's something that is uniquely wrong with me. Everybody carries around some sense of that. Some people are very aware of it. You don't even need to be told this. You're just sitting there nodding your head. You're like, yep, man, I live this every day. I hate it, and I don't know how to get out. And then some of us are so unaware that we carry this shame. It affects our lives. We just haven't realized it yet. What Brene Brown goes on to say is that shame can come from, from others or it can come from ourselves. right? So sometimes we feel shame because others are treating us in a way that's shameful and they're telling us you're not worthy. We've all experienced that in different ways. Sometimes we experience shame because we've done something shameful, right? The only people that never experience shame and guilt are, I, think, I, I, just, I just lost the word, is it sociopath, yeah. Sociopaths, people that don't have the capacity for empathy, don't have the capacity to feel shame or guilt. Shame can come from others, it can come from ourselves. The consequence of shame is it leads to hiding or exclusion. It leads to loss of connection. So when we're feeling that I am not good enough, often accompanied with that feeling, we might think, I hope that people don't find out this about me. If they know who I really am, they wouldn't think I'm worth it. And we carry that around in us, and often that leads us to hide from others, to withhold who we, who we really are and how we really operate and think. Uh, we put on really good masks, and we, especially in the, in the suburbs here, we know how to look like we're doing fine, but down deep in our, in our being, we're not. And what Brene Brown goes on to say is that this, this leads to us being one of the most addicted, medicated, codependent, anxious societies that the world has ever seen. Because we got to numb out the shame. Shame's in the Bible, too. We don't get two chapters into the Bible before we see shame. Genesis 2, 25 this is at the end of creation, and God creates Eve because Adam was alone, and that wasn't good, and they get married, and then Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were completely comfortable with who they were, and there was no disconnection between them or between them and God. Things were good, and, and it doesn't last, right? Because they eat the fruit from the tree they're told not to eat. And then we get this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, why did they make fig, fig leaves and why did they cover themselves? They're hiding. They're hiding because they feel shame. Shame is a consequence of sin that spreads out into all humanity at the fall. And when we feel shame, it makes us want to hide, right? We see that right here. And all of us have experienced that in a variety of ways. When I was 10 years old, I had some friends in my neighborhood. We lived in a cul-de-sac and just had some really good friends that we would always spend time with. And um, we, I, I think one day I had told one of my friends that I had a crush on one of the girls in the neighborhood. And I don't know how many days later, but one day I walked out 
And all my friends are in the cul-de-sac and they're drawing stuff on the street. And I go and I look and I see what they're drawing. They are drawing gigantic hearts in chalk and they put my name and this girl's name in the hearts. Oh no. How did they find out? I did not want people to find out. That was not for them to know. And then because you're 10 and, and you don't know what to do with the feelings of a crush, like, there must be something wrong with me. And, and I, I'm pretty sure my friends laughed, pointed, oh, ha ha. And I think that girl was there, right? So this was awful embarrassment, but it was more than just embarrassment. It was, I felt shame. And so you know what I did? I ran to my garage and I hid. Because when you feel shame, you hide. It's a very tangible example of how all of us react when we feel shame. I wonder for you, in your life right now, not, not back in your childhood, or if you're, if you're a child, then yeah, definitely, but in your life right now, how do you feel shame? How do you experience shame? How do you carry that around? For some of us, it's because of something we've done that's been made public, and that is shameful, and where we, it's like you can't get rid of that. For some of us, it's more the fear of shame that plagues us. And we walk around just hoping to put up a good enough mask that people won't really figure us out. My friends, the good news today, we look at what Jesus endured on the road to the cross, is that Jesus endured an incredible amount of shame. And he did that because Jesus wants to deal with our shame. We can't deal with our shame on our own, but Jesus can deal with our shame. So I want to show you three ways Jesus deals with our shame uh, and see if that's something that could help us grow and be free of this burden of shame. The first way he deals with our shame is by identifying with our experience of shame. Now, this is true of Jesus's life in general. Jesus identifies with our human experience, comes down from heaven to walk on earth as a human, identify with our human experience. It's a beautiful act of self-sacrifice, right? But he doesn't stop at just becoming a human. The descent goes further all the way to the cross, and it includes Jesus taking on our shame. So the good news is that it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter who you are or who you, who you wish you were. It doesn't matter what kind of shame you're carrying around. Jesus understands. Jesus knows what it feels like. And Jesus wants to be with you in that struggling experience. He wants to show you that he's, he's not getting away from you because you're shame. He wants to draw near you, right? And that's one of those things that undoes shame is when you get welcomed back into community. This is maybe why the first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe there's something that is especially good news for those who find themselves experiencing a lot of shame because Jesus identifies with that depth of shame. Another way Jesus helps us deal with our shame is by bearing our shame. We often think about Jesus bearing uh, our guilt, right? The, the penalty for our sin that makes it possible for us to be forgiven, and that is very true. On the cross, he also, he bears our shame. He takes the, the fullness of shame deserved to sin that, that we have earned, and he takes it from us so we don't have to experience the fullness of shame in this life. It's a beautiful thing. 
Paul talks about it in his letter to the Galatians. He explains it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And so Jesus takes on the fullness of shame that would be too great for us to bear. And he bears it for us so we don't have to bear the fullness of shame. Praise the Lord. The third way Jesus helps us deal with our shame is by having victory over our shame. So Jesus takes all our shame. He goes to the cross and the shame dies on the cross with Jesus. And you guys remember what happens three days later, right? What's coming? Easter's coming. The resurrection, Jesus gets lifted up. And the shame that he unjustly experienced gets undone. And instead of shame, Jesus experiences honor. He actually gets lifted up and crowned king of kings like he should have been, right? And those of us that follow Jesus get to experience, we, we, we get to join in that experience of resurrection. If you'll remember the verse we've been reading along with this sermon series, it's from Romans 6, and it talks about how we, experience, we, we step into, we participate in the cross and the resurrection, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We're invited to live a new life. In the resurrection, we get new identities. We become new creations. And you know what comes with a new identity? A new sense of worthiness. A victory over the shameful self that says, I'm not good enough. And Jesus says, You're good enough in Christ. It's a new sense of identity that can take away our shame. And so when I was crying in my garage, separated myself from my friends at 10 years old, one of my friends came and he noticed that I was crying. And he had one of those moments that, you know, kids and sometimes grown-ups also have. Like, oh no, I went too far. That was funny for us, not for that guy. He went back to the group of friends who were still drawing everything on the street that said, Thomas and this girl, heart, heart. And he went and he said, guys, we messed up. We, we went too far. This is like, this is wrecking Thomas pretty bad. We got, we got to fix this. So my friends went and got buckets of water. And they poured the buckets of water over the chalk drawings that had covered the whole street by now. This took hours to clean up. They poured buckets of water over the chalk drawings, and then they took their bikes. And you know how when you're a kid and you learn how to skid stop on a bike and you can like kick it sideways and leave a nice long black mark? They skid stopped out all the hearts. Soon it was just a community event. Like everyone's like pouring water, skid stopping the hearts, and they they wiped away the source of my shame, you guys. That's what Jesus does on the cross, is he wipes away our sin, the source of our shame, but he doesn't just do that. What really helped me was my friends came to me, they welcomed me back in. They reminded me that I am worth it, that I could be a part of the group again. Guys, Jesus does that for us on the cross. He comes into our experience He relates to us. He says, you are worth it. And I want to give you a new identity, a new sense of worth in Christ so that we don't have to live under shame anymore. 
So I want to ask you this. Where do you experience shame? You've already been maybe thinking about that. The big question is, will you turn that shame over to Jesus? It's not easy. Will you name it and say, Jesus, I need you to take this from me. I don't want to live with this chaining me down anymore. I want to live as the new creation you've saved me to be. And I had a good friend remind me of a verse. It's actually my second favorite verse in the whole Bible. And this is how we can live without shame. It says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Right? It's not myself anymore. It's a new identity. That's where I get my worth. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus wants to draw you near. He wants to give you freedom from shame. It's a beautiful thing, friends. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for showing us yet another picture of what is accomplished on the cross. And God, as we see the great extent that Jesus went to to save us, uh, we can't help but uh, respond with thanksgiving and praise. I pray right now, Lord, would you come and deliver us from the ways that shame uh, infects our life, the ways that we carry that around, and would you remind us of all that you've done to clear us of that shame? Would you remind us of the new identity we have in Jesus? We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.